0: My name is Abraham Philip and it's a delight and a pleasure to be here this morning with you. If Jesus were here, here meaning if he started to minister here and now perhaps as he chose his 12 disciples, he might have used a consultant company to perhaps do an evaluation of those 12 disciples. Perhaps you've heard of it. This is a very hypothetical situation. It's not real. Um, and so please don't email me or, you know, tell me, I'm, you know, this is, this is all wrong. It's just hypothetical. But a Jordan management consultant company actually did an assessment of Jesus' 12 disciples as if though, well, he had asked. He didn't, but in case he asked, they were ready with an assessment. Here's the letter that Jordan management consultants wrote to Jesus about his choice of his 12 disciples. Here's what it says. dear sir. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we have not only run the results through our computer but have also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and our vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included and you'll want to study them each carefully. As part of our service, we of course make some free counsel and advice available to you free of charge It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable (laughs) and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau... James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they are both registered, they both registered a high score on the Manic depressive scale. <laughs> one of the candidates, however, one of them shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in very high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot, as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Probably spot on. Wouldn't you agree? If Jesus were here today and he chose those 12, I dare say every one of us would have come to that conclusion. Like, Jesus, what are you thinking. Those men? You've got to be kidding. We would never hire them as a campus pastor, let alone a children's ministry leader. Forget life group leader. Like I, and if church was not an option, think of corporate America. We would never in a million years hire any of these guys to be in corporate America. Would we? And yet, these are the men that Jesus chose to empower and turn this world upside down for his glory and honor. Amen? These are the men that to the world, it looks like foolishness. To the world, it doesn't make sense. But what is foolishness to the world is the wisdom and power of God. Amen? And that's what we studied last week, we studied that what the world considers foolishness is actually the power and the wisdom of God. And that while it doesn't make sense to the world, and while it may not make sense to you and me, Jesus Christ on the cross crucified this Galilean carpenter who was rejected, who was nailed to a cross, who died as a criminal, that is the savior of the world. That doesn't make sense. To the world, that's ridiculous, and yet, that is the message of the cross, and it's the way of salvation. We're going to continue to look at that, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, a great time to perhaps open your Bible or devices to 1 Corinthians. We are at the end of a series, the series that we have entitled Divided, and we have been looking at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church that's located in the city of Corinth, And trying to correct some wrongs that have been going on, some behaviors that were inconsistent with being a child of God. You see, this church in Corinth, Corinth was a cosmopolitan city full of wisdom, or at least they thought they were, full of money, full of trade, very prosperous. And this church had allowed the wisdom of Corinth to penetrate the walls of the church and to teach them how to live life. Can I just say, church, as an aside, the world has nothing to teach us about living for Jesus Christ. Amen? But this church got it wrong, and Paul takes the time to write to them to tell them that they have been brought together from all ends of the earth, that the church is made out of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people who have been brought together in one family under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that as a result, we as family have to live united under his lordship, fulfilling his will. And last week, we looked and one of the reasons why we shouldn't be divided, and that is the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world, is the thing that saves us, that redeems us, and that makes us part of the family of God. And today we're going to continue to look at that message, and we're going to be in verse number 26, but we're going to look at the idea of boasting. Boasting. All of these guys are boasting about their wisdom and, and, and who they're following and what faction they were part of or what they had. And Paul says, you can't boast. We got nothing to boast about. But there is one thing we can boast about, and that's the message I want to leave with you this morning. And that is, if we are going to boast, we have to boast in God's power and wisdom. The only thing we can boast in is to boast in God's power and wisdom. There are two realities that the Apostle Paul brings out in these verses that I want to share with you. Two things that we should consider. The first thing that we should consider is whom God saves. We should consider whom God saves. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the Apostle Paul here in this very last paragraph of this chapter starts with, the, with a reminder of the calling. I don't know if you've paid attention during the sermon series. I'm betting you haven't. But this is the fifth time that the Apostle Paul uses the word calling. Now, we're not talking about your calling to a profession or your calling to a minister or your calling to start a life group. Please do. Um, That's not the calling that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about the calling of God in your life, that the day he intersected your life with the grace of God, that calling, the calling to be a child of God, to be added into the family of God, that calling. But with this word in this verse, he's also asking the people and us to remember where they were and what kind of people they were when that call came into their lives. What kind of people were they when grace interrupted their life. And in extension, let's just ask ourselves that question. Where were we? What kind of people were we when the grace of God invaded our life and we became a child of God? How were we behaving? What were we doing? What was our emotional and and mental state? What was going on in our lives when God invaded our story? That's the question the Apostle Paul is asking. And as he asks that question, he reminds the church that they weren't wise or powerful or noble kind of people when that call came into their lives. Now, let me be clear. Paul didn't say that there weren't any wise, powerful, or noble. You notice? He said, not many. See, there were some people that fit that category. There was Crispus, who was the former ruler of the synagogue, who had become saved and added to the church. Later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll find a man named Erastus, who happened to be the city treasurer, who had been saved and added to the church. There's Gaius, and you know Gaius, we, we have a letter to Gaius. Gaius was a wealthy businessman who was part of the church at Corinth. And so there were people who were wise, noble, and wealthy and powerful who were part of the church. But the apostle Paul says, but for the vast majority of you... That's not you. The vast majority of the people in the church of Corinth were regular, ordinary, vanilla people. In other words, according to world standards, they were nobodies. But God had chosen to save the nobodies. How many of you are happy and glad that God saves nobodies? I know there's some of you PhDs in here. Praise the Lord. There are some sea level people here. Praise God for you. There are some folks in here who've won beauty pageants and all the rest. God can save you too. (laughs) He might have to work a little extra hard, but that's all right. Praise God. He could save us all. Amen? But for the vast majority of us, the day God invaded our story was not a day we were on the mountaintop, were we? For the majority of us, that day was the bottom of the valley of the shadow of death and God invaded our story and he chose us and he took us out of there and he placed us on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. That's my story. How about yours? And Paul says, not many of you were wise or noble or powerful and yet you were chosen. You were called. And if you look in verse number 27, Paul uses the word but God to emphatically contrast the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And it's interesting to note that God seems to have this pattern. God seems to have this pattern of always choosing the opposite of what you and I would have chosen. That God decides things almost contradictory to what human wisdom tells us we should do. He makes a habit out of doing it that way. Like, for example, his disciples, I mean, who did he choose? He didn't choose the executives and the PhDs and the brilliant minds of the world. He chose fishermen. He chose a tax collector rejected and despised to take the message to the world that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Like, we wouldn't have written it that way. We wouldn't have chosen those people. But that's the kind of people God chooses the kind of people that bring glory to God in order to shame the wise and to shame the strong. I don't know if you remember back in elementary school, I certainly do, back when you had gym class and they'd line you up against the back wall. You remember? And they're getting ready to play dodgeball. Anybody remember? Yeah, oh yeah. And they'd pick two students. Remember, two students to be captains and their job was to pick the students, the the kids along the back wall to be part of their team. And they would start picking kids one after the other. When I was young, I was very small. I was very small. I was skinny as a toothpick and I was very short. And all I'm doing while I'm lined against that back wall, I'm praying, God, pick me. Please pick me. I don't want to be... Oh, you've been there. I don't feel so bad. You didn't want to be last because who was picked First? The strong, the fastest, the the smartest, the cool kids, they were picked first, and who's left on the wall? The weak, the slow, the not so cool, the nerds, Right? right? And we think that as we grow up and as we get older and as we become an adult, things change, but friends, it hasn't changed, has it? We're still all lined up against the back wall and the world picks the people that are beautiful and powerful and wealthy and influential and those are the ones that the world picks. Nothing's really changed, has it? We can fool ourselves into thinking it's different, but really, it isn't. You know, overtly or subconsciously, the truth is still that the world believes, the world believes That it's a survival of the fittest, the brightest, the wealthiest, the most influential. And everybody else is just, well, along for the ride. But God. Amen? But God, those two words change our entire story. It changes the entire story of history. But God doesn't play by human rules. Amen? God doesn't play by our human wisdom. God's wisdom is foolishness to us. But praise God it is, because it is the power and wisdom of God. Amen? So why does God do it that way? Why does God choose counter to human wisdom? Why is it that God always seems to do it backwards? Well, in verses 28 and 29, it says, so that there's no room to boast. There's no room to boast. In fact, as you look at those verses, Paul uses two words to describe the kind of people that God chooses. It says, he chooses those who are low. That word low has this picture of being the bottom of the barrel has the picture of being bottom of the barrel. If you remember the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, you remember Gideon at night <clears throat> in a cave is threshing wheat. That's not how you thresh wheat, but he's doing that because he's afraid of the Midianites that had invaded their land. And in the middle of the night as he's doing that, an angel of the Lord shows up out of nowhere and says to him, O oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, You're talking to me? (laughs) Because he's chicken with a capital C. And yet the Lord says that. And the Lord says through the angel, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a general. And you're going to deliver my people. And he's like, you're what? No, no. Look, look, look. I'm from the tribe of Manasseh, the smallest in that area. And I'm from the smallest, smallest family in the tribe of Manasseh. And in that family, I'm the runt of the litter. In other words, I am the bottom of the barrel. You have got to be kidding. And God says, oh yeah, you're the one I want. And he picks Gideon, gives him 300 men to go up against a sea of soldiers that I can't even see the end of. And God gives him the victory. God picks those who are low. The second word there is the word uh, despised. Despised means scorned, ridiculed, laughed at. You might remember the story of 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. Very familiar story, right? There is Goliath, tall, huge, imposing, standing there in his armor and with his sword and his spear, challenging the people of Israel, challenging the God of Israel. And here comes little scrawny David. David's a teenager. He's wearing shepherd's clothes. He's got a sling. And the Bible says when Goliath, this huge giant of a man, sees David, he despised him in his heart because he was a boy. You see, he was insulted that Israel would send a boy to fight a man. But that's exactly what they did. And it's okay to have a sling against a sword if God's with you. You've heard the phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Unless you have God on your side. You understand what I'm saying? In both of these stories, who got the glory? God did. In both of these stories, God got the glory. When he picks the low, and when he picks the despised, and when he picks the nobodies of the world, he gets the glory because those people he chose, they can't boast. Guess what? He picked all of you and me for the same reason. We have nothing to boast. We have nothing to show him. Like none of us are going to get to heaven and we're not going to look at Jesus and say, wow, Jesus, aren't you so lucky to have me on your team? <laughs> not going to happen. We're going to say nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross cycling. That's all we can say. Because it isn't about us. It's about him. He chose us. He redeemed us. He made us part of his family. And so we have nothing that we can boast in. You know, if we were writing these stories, these aren't the way we would write them, would, would we? This isn't the way we would write these characters. These aren't the ways we'd make these stories turn out. We would have had a giant against a giant. We'd had something wonderful and dramatic. God doesn't work that way, does he? When he writes the story, he writes it for his glory so that none of us can boast. And that's how God chooses. It's always contrary to the way we think it should be. Always contradictory to human wisdom. And yet that's whom God chooses. The lowly, the despised, the not so noble, the not so influential, the nobodies of the world, so that none of us can boast. That's whom God chooses. That brings us to the second point in verses 30 and 31. That is, consider how God chooses. Consider how God chooses. Verse 30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, but the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the way the Lord saves has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. You see, the the choice of God is a divine act of God's sovereign grace. That grace intercepted you and me at some point in our lives where he convicted us of our sin and convinced us of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. And in that moment, invited us into a new relationship with him, and added us into his family. That choice is God's, and God chose us to be in his family. Now, that rubs some of you wrong, because you're like, no, 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 no. I chose. I said yes. I did it. So what do you mean? Can I just remind you? We love him because he first loved us we can't love him first we were dead in our trespasses and sins by the way dead people don't do anything and so for us to respond to the call he must first quicken us to life and so we can't choose him first he had to choose us first and that choice let me just say this i didn't get a vote in choosing you and you didn't get a vote in choosing me aren't you glad for that he chose me before the foundation of the world. Even before I drew my first breath, he chose me. He didn't choose me because of who I, what I look like or what I could do or my merits. By the way, I had none of those things. He chose me before the foundation of the world to be part of his family. And I am so thankful that I responded to the grace of God that added me into his family. Friends, I didn't have a vote in, in your salvation. And I'm so thankful you didn't have a vote in mine. I'm not so sure I'd chosen you either. Aren't you glad God did? (laughs) He chose us before the foundation of the world. He called the weak. He called the lowly. He called the poor. He called the nobodies. He called you and me. How? Sovereign choice. God sovereignly chose us. But even though many of us didn't have the wealth, or the status, or the influence, or the power before we were in Christ, Now that we are in Christ, Paul tells us that we have something we didn't have before, and that is the wisdom of God. And in fact, he unpacks that word wisdom of God by giving us three terms that help us understand the status we have with God. It it defines our relationship with Jesus. Notice those three words. The first word is righteousness. Righteousness has to do with how God accepts us. So how does a holy perfect, righteous God, except an unholy, guilty sinner like me. He does it by sending Jesus to a cross to die in my place, to take my sin upon himself, to shed his blood, and when He called me, and I received that gift for myself. He accepted me, not because of my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been applied to me. So now I stand before him with right standing because I don't wear my righteousness, I wear his. I'm justified by faith. Justified, righteousness, same word. It's right standing with God. I have a new Position, a new, new acceptance in Christ. A new acceptance in Christ. Righteousness. Secondly, sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we are being made holy or set apart. It's a process that starts because of the new position that I'm in. You see, I once was in sin. I once was dead in my trespasses and sins. I once was an object of God's wrath, but God saved me. He pulled me out of that position, and he put me in a new position. The new position is in Christ. And because I have a new position, God has given me the power of the Spirit that dwells within me that empowers me to want to live like Christ, to love like Christ, to do the things of Christ in my life. And the more I do those things, the more the Spirit propels and powers me to be like Christ, the more holy I become. It's the new position that propels me to be more holy. Sanctification. And thirdly, redemption. You know, in the ancient world, if you couldn't pay your bills and you had debt, and you couldn't pay that debt, they didn't have any bankruptcy laws. Like, that that would get you out of the mess. You still had to pay your bills. And so you had to sell your property. And if that wasn't enough, you had to sell your family into slavery. And if that wasn't enough, you sold yourself into slavery to pay off the debt. And once you sold yourself and everything you have, now the owner owns everything And the only way to get out of that kind of a situation outside of the grace of the owner is for a relative like your brother or brother-in-law to love you enough, hopefully he does, um, to work hard enough and save enough to pay the redemption price to get you out of slavery. That didn't happen often. My friends, you and I were enslaved to sin. We were dead We were in sin. We were slaves of sin. That's all we knew. And that's what we loved. We loved sin and we played with sin and we lived in sin. But Jesus came along. And he didn't redeem us with money. He redeemed us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he paid the transaction price. He paid our debt. He rescued us out of slavery. And he brought us into his family. And because of that, you and I who have accepted Jesus Christ by faith, we are now redeemed. We are free. We are free from sin. We are free from death. We are redeemed. How many of you are glad that you're redeemed? Amen. Amen. Paul uses these terms to highlight our status before God, that we are righteous, sanctified, redeemed. That's the wisdom of God in choosing you. One commentator said it this way, since those who were not now are in Christ, their status before God is established and confirmed. Through no action on their part, through no degree of human wisdom or plan, God worked in Christ, crucified, to accomplish all that was necessary to allow them to stand before God. Friends, it's nothing to do with us. We have no merit, no skill, nothing that says that we deserve this. We don't. It's all because of his grace and his mercy that intercepted our lives, that made us his children. And why does he do it? The reason is in verse 31, so that no one will boast. So that no one has room to boast. You know, you and I, we love boasting. Oh, come on, don't look at me like that. We like to boast. We like to boast about the things we have. We like to boast about our vacations. We like to boast about the things we've accomplished. We like to boast about the abilities we have. Oh, don't look at me like, like you've never done that. You have. You've all patted yourself on the back, right? Come on. But what's wrong with that kind of boasting? That kind of boasting is all vapor because it's here today and gone tomorrow. See, the only thing you and I who are in Jesus Christ can boast about are the things that never fade away. And the only thing that never fades away is Jesus. And that's why Paul says, if we're going to boast, we boast in the Lord because that's the only one we have. That everything we have today is because of Jesus. And you're thinking, no, 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 but I, I've done a lot of things. My friends, you are not even here by your own strength. You got up this morning because God woke you up. You got out of bed and came here because God gave you the strength to get here. Not a single one of us is in the land of the living because of us, it's because of Him. And so the things we accomplish in our life, the things we get to do with our lives, the things we get to acquire in our lives, it's all because of him. He empowers us. He enables us. And so who gets the glory? He does. Not me and not us, but him. And that's why Paul says if we're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And yet we have such a problem with boasting, don't we? We like to boast. You know, I'm reminded of a story of a woodpecker who was on a tree pecking away, and all of a sudden lightning hit that tree, and it split that tree right down the middle. And the woodpecker stopped and looked at that and said, hmm, Flew off. After some time, came back with nine of his buddies, and he proudly pointed at that tree and said, "Gentlemen, take a good look. That's what I did." Isn't that true? That's our boasting. It doesn't amount to much because we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. It's all because of him. We boast only because of Jesus Christ. God chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the ordinary things of this world to confound the wise and to confound the strong so that God gets all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. The world doesn't understand how we can follow a rejected carpenter who died like a criminal on a bloody cross. That message doesn't resonate. That message doesn't make sense. Why would you follow somebody who died like a criminal? And yet that one act changed all of history because it is that bloody cross on which our Savior died that changed your life and mine. Jesus paid it all, all to him we all. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Friends, that doesn't make sense to people. That doesn't make sense to our world. That's foolishness. Like, how could that message save my soul? How can that message make me right with God? But that's the foolishness of God that trumps the wisdom of men. Amen that it's Jesus on a cross who died and was buried and rose again on the third day, that that message would be the way, the truth, the only path for salvation given by which we might be saved. Foolishness to the world, but it's the righteousness of God, the wisdom and power of God. Brian Loritz told a story about a time he was at a pastor's conference and he met a very young pastor and asked him how he had come to faith in Jesus Christ. That young man said, look, you won't believe me if I told you. (laughs) Brian said, try me. And so this young man told a story. He said his father was a professional athlete. But at the time that this story happened, he had retired, and he was now a high school basketball coach. Whatever your picture is of a professional athlete lifestyle, that was how they that their house was. His father wrecked havoc on their life. They lived a thoroughly pagan life. That's their life. And every Sunday, they would get together as a family and they would sit in front of the TV and they loved football and they would watch their favorite team, the Denver Broncos. And they would watch them every Sunday and so that was their time as a family, they would sit and watch the football game. And on this particular day, the Denver Broncos were playing and they were watching the show and his father was doing the same thing he always does and that is drinking and chugging beer. And at this point in the story, the young man says, look, dad had already chugged through a number of beers. He was buzzed. He wasn't drunk, but he was certainly buzzed. And the team is about to kick an extra point or perhaps a field goal. He doesn't remember which. And all of a sudden, there's a pause in the action and the camera pans the stands. And they're showing the crowd. And it stops at a particular place where there's a man in a clown suit. And that man in a clown suit is holding up a sign. And the sign reads Romans 10, 9-10. And all of a sudden, Dad says, Stop! Bring me a Bible. And all of the kids in the house were like, Dad's drunk. What's wrong with him? They think he's had one too many beers, so they just ignore him. But Dad's adamant, bring me a Bible. And he said they had to tear the house apart, but they finally, after some time, found one Bible. They found one. They brought it to dad. Dad opened it to the table of contents, found Romans, flipped quickly to the book of Romans, found chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10, and read these words. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The young man said his father knelt by his couch and accepted Jesus Christ right then and right there. And they thought, dad's crazy. Like he must be really drunk. They were so skeptical they didn't believe it. But in the days to come, dad did a 180. His whole life had changed. He had stopped drinking and stopped berating and stopped living this pagan lifestyle. And he had latched on to Jesus and he was living a life they couldn't understand. And without too much time going by, this man was able to lead his entire family to Jesus Christ. And now that young man is, being, is, is training to be a pastor. Friends, that is the foolishness of the gospel. Like, what was that guy thinking when he, on that Sunday morning, took up the clown costume and put it on and wrote up Romans, 9, Romans 10, 9, and 10? And what, like, what was he thinking when he did that? Is he nuts? Yeah, he probably is. <clears throat> Hundreds of miles away, because of one camera pan, God's grace intercepted a man who was half drunk and saved his soul saved his family, and brought him into the kingdom of God. God, Guys, that doesn't make sense. That's ridiculous. But that's the power of God to salvation. You and I can never know what we can do if we're surrendered to him. Friends, you don't have to be articulate. You don't have to know every part of the Bible. You don't have to have your theological I's and theological T's crossed. That doesn't mean you don't need to know your Bible. But friends, if you are willing to hold up a sign and put on a clown costume, God can use you (laughs) to save souls. That is the power and the wisdom of God. It doesn't make sense to the world. But God is in the business of taking what the world thinks is right and turning it upside down for his glory so that no one may boast. Friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, we invite you to come to know him today. If you can go all over the world, find all kinds of answers, but none of the philosophies of this world will ever satisfy and has never satisfied. There's only one place you're going to find truth, and that is at a bloody cross 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary, where Jesus, the Son of God, came, hung on three nails, bleeding from every side, not because he was the criminal, but you and I were. And he paid a debt I could never pay to give us a relationship with God we didn't deserve. If you would but pray the same prayer that that main prayed, believed in his heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you too will be saved. If you have questions, if you're confused, if you'd like to accept Jesus, I'll be in the lobby. I'd love to meet you and I'd love to talk to you. Please don't rush out of here to lunch when your eternity is in the balance. Come to know Jesus Christ by faith today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm so thankful for every one of you. But remember that it is not our wisdom that saved us, it's His. And so we come humbly before an almighty God. We don't come with our Resumes, we don't come with our abilities, we don't come with our worth, we don't come with our marketing spiel, we come with nothing. And we say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. Blood that saves, that doesn't make sense to the world, but it's a message that the world needs to hear. So, the same God that saved you, no matter where you were, friends, can you be that message to the world outside? You too can wear a clown costume. And bring glory to God. But are you willing? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for reminding us that it's not about us, that it's all about you. That in your sovereignty, in your divine act of grace, you chose us before the foundation of the world. In spite of our failures, in spite of our mistakes, in spite of the fact that we still make mistakes. and you keep loving us. We don't deserve any of it. But thank you. Thank you for the cross and thank you for Jesus. Would you empower us to continue to live for you humbly, worshiping you and giving you the glory that is rightfully due unto your name because we have nothing to boast about. Everything that we've ever had and done, it's all because of you. Help us to share that message boldly with whoever you put in our Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, may today be the day where they come to know you by faith. Continue to convict them of their sin. Continue to convince them of the truth of who you are, so that they too might be added to the family, that they too might know peace, that they too might have hope of eternity. Well, thank you for all that you have done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,